first three chapters explaining to us, uh, listen, it doesn't matter if you are um, a rebellious kind of person or if you are a respectable kind of person or if you are a religious person, uh, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, right? So, and there's none righteous, no, not one. Therefore, we all need the same thing. We need, we need someone to help us connect with our creator because sin has, has breached that connection. It has created separation. And so Paul tells us exactly how that happens through faith in Christ. And then he gave, in chapter 4 of Romans, an example of that through the life of Abraham. And so Paul uh, is saying, listen... Um, salvation is not just about getting your sins forgiven, your ticket to heaven punched, and then you just kind of do your own thing. Salvation is about spiritual formation. And what that simply means is that God is in the process now that you've given your life to Christ to form within you the image of Jesus. Romans 8.29 says that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so God works in us in order to formulate us with the mind of Christ so that we begin to think with Jesus' thoughts, his truth that will set us free as opposed to lies that only keeps us in bondage. And so this testimony was a man who believed lies, though he thought the lies were truth to him, but it led him to bondage. It wasn't until he found the truth of God's word that changed his narrative, how he thought and processed life, that he discovered what freedom is really all about in Christ. And so as we have the mind of Christ, we develop the character of Christ, which is the fruit of the Spirit, which enables us then to live the life of Jesus. And that's why we say that the mission of our church is to help you take your next step. We want to help you take your next step in God's formation of creating the image of Christ within you. Now, having said that, that means that there is a war that goes on inside of us. And you all are familiar, if you've been walking with Jesus any time at all, you know there's this spiritual battle that goes on inside, and it's the battle between lies and um, slavery, or truth and freedom. So listen to what Jesus says um, in John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Right? So when we live in truth, we have freedom. When we live in lies, we have bondage. And so he gets in this conversation because the Jewish people listening are saying, well, you know, hey, we've got this and this. But I don't want you to notice what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 44. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his nature, his, na his native language, for he is a liar and the father of, of lies. Now, there are three things that Jesus says in these two verses. Number one, that there is a real devil, okay? There is actually Satan. He is alive and well. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a cartoon character, but he is a, a deceiver. He is a slanderer. He is a, an accuser. He is a destroyer of lives, if at all possible. So just like the video we saw, if, if you're following a false narrative built on lies, and look at where it took his life, into the drug culture, into prison, and without hope, and without meaning, without purpose, in bondage, in slavery. And so that was never God's plan for us, and his intention for us when he created us. The second thing we notice is that Satan's goal is to spread death. 
He says he is a murderer from the beginning. When Jesus said in John 10.10 that thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And so what that means is Satan's motto is tear it all down. Whatever God's created, I'm going to tear it all down. Whatever that takes. And so if we, you know, wherever you find uh, life, he tries to stamp it out. Wherever you find beauty, Satan tries to deface it. Wherever you find love, he'll try to corrupt it. Wherever you find unity, he will try to fragment it into a million pieces. The third thing he says is that the devil's means by which he does all of this is by lies. Lies that are couched in deception. He calls him the father of lies. He says it's his native language. And he lies through the use of deception. And lies have the potential of distorting your soul and, if you're not careful, destroying your life and driving you into, you, into ruin. So let me give you an example of this. What, what is a lie that we often hear, um, married couples often hear, so many years into their marriage? And things aren't going real well. And so all of a sudden this thought comes to your head, hey, you know, you deserve to be happy, right? You, you deserve to be happy. And let's, let's face it, you're, you've not been happy for a long time in this marriage. And your wife just isn't the right fit for you. Or your husband just isn't the right fit. Don't worry, it happens. You know, you just married too young. You married the wrong person. Uh, you know, there's somebody else out there who is really your soulmate, and, and you just need to go out and find them and divorce this present spouse and go out and find, find whoever it is that is really going to make you happy and bring fulfillment in your life. Now, how many people have believed this lie? Well, look at the divorce rate in America, and even those who did not get divorced but still had this kind of thought at some point in their marriage. Man, I, I married the wrong person. I, I don't know what I was doing. I married too young. And, and all these thoughts come through our mind because Satan is generating this thought process in order to get us dissatisfied. Remember, where there is unity, he wants to fragment it. Where there is beauty, he wants wants to deface it where there is uh, whatever it is. He wants to destroy it. And so for many people, when they start having this thought, guess what? Whenever Satan gets you into a moment of emotional readiness, he brings along the bait. It's some young thing that's in your office, and all of a sudden she's taken a liking to you and begins talking to you, and the conversation is casual at first, and over time, over time it goes deeper, and you get into areas you should not get into, and if you're not careful over time, it becomes a full-blown affair. Happens over and over and over and over again. This is what Satan's this is what he does. And so we sin, not because uh, out of duty or discipline. We sin because we believe a lie about what is going to make me happy. And so the Bible says we have three enemies. We have the devil, we have the flesh, and we have the world. So let me tell you, show you how he sets this up. The flesh is your sinful nature apart from God that's guided by your impulses. That is, and this is on your outline, Satan fills your minds your mind with deceptive ideas, which plays into our disordered desires, our flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society. You know, when I was in college, I was a psychology major, and one class I had was abnormal psychology. Most of the stuff that was considered abnormal psychology back then is considered normal by society, and if you don't believe it's normal, you're considered abnormal. Because this is the way Satan operates. 
He wants to destroy all that God has created in his beauty and its magnificence. And so our thoughts, our beliefs, our experiences formulate these thought patterns. And our enemy, you know, we have to replace the lie-based narrative with truth-based narrative. And this is what Paul's going to discuss in Romans 5 through 8. So we're going to slow our roll through these uh, chapters because if you will grasp the foundational truth of these chapters, it will forever change your life. It will forever dramatically um, enable you to walk in the freedom that Jesus came to secure for you. Those areas that you're constantly struggling and battling with, you can have victory in over those areas. Listen, freedom doesn't come because you have heard the truth. Freedom doesn't come because you believe the truth. Freedom only comes when you appropriate the truth. This is what God told Joshua as he was taking Israel into the promised land. Moses has died. God says to Joshua, be sure to meditate upon my law day and night and be careful to do all that is in it. And then and only then will you have success. So what happened when they did not follow what God told them to do? They did not have success. And so it's not enough to know the truth and believe the truth. We have to appropriate it. So what I want to help us do is learn how to appropriate that truth so that you experience actual formation, transformation, renewing of the mind that leads to a renewing of your, your life. And so in the first 11 verses, if you'll go to Romans 5 now, Paul lays out for us some what I'm going to call benefits of believing in Christ. And some people say, well, you know, uh, I, you know I've been thinking about Jesus. I, I don't know about, you know, all that stuff. I, I don't know what the, what's the benefit of this. Like, what's the benefit of having a relationship with Jesus? And what do you do? What do you say to them? Well, Paul's going to give you six benefits. We're going to hit three of them today uh, and uh, three next Sunday. But um, these benefits are foundational. Once you lay the foundation and you build on this foundation, then everything Paul lays out in chapters 6 through 8 begin to make perfect sense that enables us to be more victorious than perhaps we have been in the past. So here's the first benefit is peace with, with God. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, hit the word therefore. What is therefore referring to? Well, where he concluded in chapter 4. So look back in chapter 4. Remember Paul was using Abraham as an example of what it means to be justified by faith. Verse 25 says, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our what? Our justification. The reason we have peace with God is because we have justification. So what does that big churchy word mean? So I want to break it down for you. I put on your outline an, an, a uh, definition that I'm going to be operating off of this morning. And so let's look at it together because I want you to underline a few words. Justification is the judicial act of God. Underline judicial act. The judicial act of God whereby he forgives the unsaved person's sin. Underline forgives. And imputes or credits to them the righteousness of Christ underline imputes, credits, when through faith they believe, underline the word faith. So you've underlined judicial act, forgives, imputes, or credits, and the word faith. So let's break down this word justification. 
build that foundation, and then show you why it is so important that we understand this term and how we relate to God, how we relate to ourselves, and how we relate to other people as followers of Jesus Christ. So let's take the judicial act. So let's picture a courtroom scene because this is what the judicial act is all about. It's like a courtroom. So what did Paul do? In the first three chapters of Romans, I said he, he built a courtroom. All of humanity is on trial, and he is declared at the end of the trial, all of us are guilty, right? All of sin fallen short of God's glory. All, none's righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. I mean, he came to the conclusion that all of humanity is guilty before God because of our, our sin. And so uh, the witnesses come in. So let's pretend that Greg's in the courtroom. God is, has me on trial. And so um, I'm on trial. God is the judge. And all of a sudden, Moses comes into the courtroom. He is a witness against me. And he brings up to the attorney, the prosecuting attorney, and says, well, I, I, I just want you to know that Greg has broken pretty much all the laws. In fact, let's just start with the Ten Commandments, which is nothing more than a summary of all the laws, if you take all the laws of the Old Testament and summarize them, they're in the Ten Commandments. Let's just kind of click that off and see how Greg did. And so, like, he's clicking it off, guilty here, guilty here, guilty here. And so now all of a sudden, I'm, my, like, my head is beginning to hang, and it's like, oh, my word. And so then the next witness that comes in is Satan himself. Now, remember, he's the accuser of the brethren. He knows my thoughts. He knows everything I've done in secret. He knows all the, everything about me. He starts rattling off his accusations one after another, one after another against me, and then I think it's all done and wrapped up, and then some of my family members and my friends come in, and they start rattling off some stuff about where I've let them down, and these things that I've done, and these things that they've seen, and uh, these things they've experienced, and by now, I mean, like, I could play handball against a curb. I'm feeling so low about myself, and then suddenly the judge says to me, hey, Greg, let me ask you a question. Are these things true. Yes, your honor, every single one of them. And then my defense attorney gets up and asks to approach the bench. Now my defense attorney, his name is Jesus Christ, but he doesn't approach the judge like any ordinary judge. There's no your honor because the judge is his father. And he looks at the judge and he says, Judge, you know that every one of these accusations that have been brought against Greg are absolutely true without a doubt that the wages of sin is death, and that's exactly what he deserves. He deserves death. He deserves hell. He deserves to be the recipient of your wrath. But you also know, Your Honor, that, and I put into evidence Exhibit A, that my shed blood on Calvary, that there was a day and time in March of 1977 when Greg came forward in the First Baptist Church of, of Heath, Ohio, and he gave his heart and his life to me. He bowed before me and asked me to become his Lord and Savior of his life. And on that day, uh, my shed blood is what cleansed him, is what purified him, is what provided for his forgiveness and belief in my resurrection, his surrender to my Lordship, God, you know, Father, that I have done everything that is needed on behalf of Greg. And the judge, with a smile on his face, hits the gavel on the table and says, not guilty, debt paid in full, you're free to go. Amen. That's judicial justification. 
This is what God has done. He has forgiven you of all your sin. And so forgiveness of sin, um, what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that God only forgave me up to the point of when I was born and my sin to the day that I gave my heart and life to Jesus. It means that judicially God forgave me of all of my past sins, my present sins, and my future sins, that those sins have been forever marked paid in full. The debt is canceled. I have been set free from the responsibility of the actions of those sin, the wages of sin, which was to be my spiritual death rather than spiritual death I have acquired spiritual life in Christ I became a citizen of God's kingdom a child in the family of God transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son and so now every single sin I have ever done will do or may do in the future has been marked paid in full now that does not mean that God takes sin lightly as a believer doesn't give me a license now to go out and do whatever I want. Paul's going to deal with this in Romans 6. People will say to me, well, but you know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, if God's forgiven our sins past, present, and future, why are we doing all this confession? Listen, justification is a judicial act. John was addressing a letter to believers. That is a parental forgiveness. It's like God is my father, and so when I sin against my father, there's a sense of guilt in my heart that I've sinned against my father, and the only way I can make that right in my heart is to come before him and confess it, and, and if I do that, he says, man, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm faithful, I'm righteous, I will forgive, and the reason, because Jesus has already paid your debt. It's like being in school and you're cheating on your test and your teacher sees that you're cheating but she doesn't say anything and you hand in that paper and you get a 100 and she hands it back, doesn't say a word knowing that you cheated on that test and you look at that paper, you're going to feel good about that 100, that A? Of course you're not because you know she knows that you cheated and the only way you're going to alleviate that guilt is to what? To go and confess it to her. That's Jude. That is parental. That is relational confession, forgiveness that has nothing to do with, with um, your relationship as a child of God. It's about fellowship with God. Don't confuse the two because you're going you're gonna to misread a lot of scriptures in the New Testament that are assigned to believers. This is a judicial act of God. So what does God do? He, um, listen, he forgives me of all my sins. And then it says he imputes upon us, he credits us with the righteousness of Christ. It means that he assigns the righteousness of Jesus to us. And so we were all unrighteous in our standing with God, and so God now makes us righteous. He makes us right. The only way I can enter into God's presence, the only way I can enter into heaven is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, which is why when we baptize people, when we put a white robe on them representing their being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we don't ever want them to forget that you are forever clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks upon you, he does not see your sin. He sees Jesus in you. And so what happened on the cross at Calvary is that my sin debt got credited to Jesus and his righteousness through faith in him got credited to my account, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So the day that you gave your life to Jesus, God marked it, say, the debt's paid in full. I'm forgiving everything. I'm clothing you in the righteousness of Christ. And it says then those who've what? 
have righteousness in Christ when through faith they believe. We are righteous in him when the faith we place in him. And even, even the faith that we had to put in Jesus was a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not as a result of what you've done. It's a result of what Christ has done. For by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, that any man should boast. So every single thing you and I have by being declared just, justified by God means that every, one, every bit of it was a gift of God. Jesus was a gift from the Father to us. Romans 5, 8 says, For while we were yet sinners, Christ, God demonstrated his love by Christ dying for us. He was demonstrating his love, his compassion for us. And then we were clothed in the righteousness of Christ and forgiven of all of our sin. And even the faith to believe was an act of God's grace. So he says, that's why no one can, can boast. And that faith that brought me to the feet of Jesus is the faith that continues inside of us, empowered by the Holy Spirit to energize us, to follow God, to walk after him, to grow in him, to allow God to spiritually formate our life into the image of Jesus Christ so that when people come into contact with us, they're going to come into contact with as much Jesus as we have to give them by the way we love them, by the way we treat them. And because God has done all of this, he says we have peace with God. This peace is not about feelings. This peace is about facts. It's about what you know, not what you're feeling. There's a difference between peace with God and peace of God. The peace of God, yes, has more to do with feelings. Peace with God is a judicial act of God. It is fact. It is what God says. This is what I did the day you gave your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. I drew you into that relationship. And he says, man, everything in your life has now changed. And the war between us, the war between us, the wrath that was hanging over you has now been removed. There is no longer enmity there's no longer a fractured relationship between you and I. This is all foundational to us. It's a part of the gospel that says, you know, I hear people say, well, you know, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And I get what people mean by that, but it's a dangerous statement. Because sometimes people think, well, because, you know, God loves you, even though he hates your sin, uh, he's going to give you a pass at the end, right? Everybody's going to sing Kumbaya in heaven, and God's just going to give you a pass because you didn't know any better, and it's going to be all skating, and it's all going to be okay. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches that the wrath of God remains on those who are unbelieving. Not that it gets imputed upon them, but it remains on them. It's a paradox, and anytime there's great truth in the Bible, it is often context in a paradox, which is kind of confusing. Was Jesus both, was Jesus God or man, right? Oh, well, he was both. Well, how is that? How can you be both 100% God, 100% man? My mind cannot comprehend that. Great, because that's a part of the mystery of God, right? Who, who wrote the Bible, the Holy Spirit or man? Both. Men guided by the Holy Spirit, God wrote down his word that is truth and is infallible and for us, for our faith in our lives. And, you know, this question of salvation, well, who saved me? Did, did, did God call on me or did I call on him? Both. 
Jesus said, if the Spirit of God had not drawn you to me, you would have never been drawn, but yet I had to, by an act of my will, make that decision to receive Christ into my life. All right, so it's a paradox, and don't let that trip you up, because you don't want to lessen the, the doctrine of all of this. So in John 3, 36, when Jesus, you know, after um, his great um, statement about John 3, 16, which we are all very familiar with, what does he say in, in John um, 336, I want you to just listen to this. It says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath, watch this, remains on him. It doesn't say that God's wrath was given to them. It says it remains on them. So yes, God can hate sin, love the sinner, but yet God's wrath still remains on them. God's not removed that. The only way God's wrath gets removed from you is through faith in Jesus Christ. And at that moment in time, God justifies you. He judicially, in an act of judicial uh, statement, says you have been forgiven of your sins. You've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I've empowered you with the faith and I've dwelt you with the Holy Spirit so that I might formulate your Christ into the imi- your life into the image of Jesus Christ. Now here... He says in, back in verse 5, in chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, We've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I say all that to say this. There are only two classifications of people. You're either under grace or you're under wrath. There's no in-between. Now, the reason why this excuse me, concept of justification is so important to us is because when you understand it, it enables you to rest in your relationship with God. To rest in your relationship with God. Let me give you a couple of false narratives by way of example. For example, false narrative one. Um, some of you who are, are of the older generations, like you're my age and older, I, I can almost assure you that you've probably been saved about 25 to 30 times in your lifetime. Right? So you got saved, and then, you know, a church has brought in uh, an evangelist who was a revivalist, and, you know, is preaching that is, you know, heaven is sweet, hell is hot, and, man, I mean, they're just going at it, and you feel the flames kind of, you know, bursting up around your feet, and you're thinking, man, I, I can't wait to get down front. I, I, I can't wait to get my life to Jesus all over again, because now there's some doubt that begins to seep into your mind and into your heart, and you're not really sure if you knew what you were doing when you did it, and maybe you were too young, and maybe you didn't understand enough, and, and so all these doubts doubts begin to arise, and so, man, I need to get down there and get saved again, and so you do. You go down there, you get saved, and maybe you got baptized again. Some of you might have been baptized four or five times in your lifetime. I don't know. I remember there was a very famous evangelist when I was uh, a teenager, and he would make this statement. He would say, listen, if you ever had a doubt about your salvation, that doubt is not coming from Satan because he knows that if you doubted you could get saved, that's coming from God, and God's trying to say to you, you were never saved in the first place. And so this guy would give an invitation. Well, thousands are coming out of the stands, or thousands are coming forward in churches because who hasn't had a doubt at some point in their life whether or not they were truly saved, Right? And so people are getting rebaptized, and this is going on and on. And the reason why is because we have no firm foundation upon which to build the, the, um, the salvation experience upon God's word. What does God say? God says, listen, 
You weren't justified because you earned it. You weren't justified because you deserved it. You were justified because Jesus was willing to pay for it. And when you put your faith in him, I didn't say you had to have perfect faith. I didn't have to say you had the faith you have now uh, that you didn't have when you got saved. I didn't say you had to understand every single concept about the Bible. There are a lot of things I didn't understand about the Bible, but I understood that Jesus was calling me to be in relationship to be Savior and Lord, and therefore at that moment in time, did I understand this at that moment in time? No. But as you study God's Word and you come to the knowledge of God's Word, God says, at that moment in time, I mark you as justified. I've forgiven all of your sins. I've clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And by the way, this word justified is in the aorist tense in the Greek, which simply means it is a past completed action, never to be repeated again. Ever. It is a one-time event that we are justified, judicially not guilty in God's eyes, and clothed in his righteousness. And our sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west, and plunged beneath the sea of forgetfulness, And therefore, my relationship is built upon the truth of God's word, not my ever-changing feelings. I know people who struggle all of their lives sometimes with this issue. Here's another false narrative. Some of you, all right, well, you've got that down, but then you've committed some big sin back in your former life, and I don't know what it is, but it, gets, it plagued you then, it plagues you now. Maybe you had a divorce, maybe it was an abortion, maybe it was, um, you know, you, you committed a crime, or whatever it might have been, and so God justifies you, and he brings you into relationship, and he says, now there's no enmity anymore, we're not at war with each other, you're at peace with me, and but we just keep bringing that to the table. And every time I come to prayer, and it's like the evil one, what does he do? He brings this stuff up to you, right? He says, well, what about this? And don't you remember this? And don't you remember that? And you sure God really forgave you of that? And you really think that's covered under the blood? I don't know if God can forgive that. I don't. And so now he just keeps bringing all this stuff up. And, and unless you understand that God has fully forgiven and removed you and clothed you in the righteousness of Jesus and given you faith to walk in him and it's, it's hard to have a relationship with somebody that you just don't know where you stand. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? Am I believed enough? Am I, and it just goes on and on. And so we miss out oftentimes on the beauty of this relationship with our Heavenly Father because we're constantly like a yo-yo back and forth, up and down, concerning our relationship with Him. And God says, I, man, I sealed all this back in Jesus. And that's where it all began. And understanding justification answers the accusations of your conscience and Satan. Satan, remember, he's the accuser. Man, he wants to highlight every shortcoming you have and condemn you to death if he can. That's what he does. He just condemns. You ought to feel, you ought to feel bad about yourself. You're a horrible person. God should God never forgive you of this. And, and what, hey, hey, Craig, what about that sin that you've come back and you've confessed for the 50th time? Don't you think God's a little tired of hearing that? Don't you think you ought to have some victory in that area of your life right now? And so now I come into my relationship with God, and rather than coming in my relationship knowing that I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus that brings me access into the 
chamber of God himself and I'm praying and, and rather than delighting in the Holy, in my heavenly father and praying as Jesus said, man, our father who art in heaven, how holy is your name? I'm worshiping you. I, I can't worship because I feel like a worm on the floor and I just kind of crawl into his presence and say, oh God. And then I just start pouring off and Satan's condemning me. You're a horrible person. You know, but you know, there's nothing you can do about this and you, it's the way it's always going to be. And this, this is the extent of where your relationship goes. And your conscience then, man, it can just like beat you to death. And so, understanding justification, what did God say? What's the truth? How many sins did he forgive? All of them. Any of them he hasn't? So if you fail to confess one of them, is he going to hold that against you the rest of your life? All right, so what does God want? He wants relationship. He wants intimacy. He wants fellowship. He desires. He longs. The Bible says he dances over you. He sings over you. He longs for this beautiful relationship that you feel like, you know what? I know that I am at peace with God, and nothing can change that. And the last one is justification results in no longer fearing death and hell, right? I've been with many people on their deathbed. Some of them were infant in their faith in Christ, yet they were believers. And while there was a measure of peace, but when it came to death and dying, they were absolutely scared to death. You know, Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 through 15 says that Jesus came to remove that fear. Now, you may fear the process, um, you know, because death is not something we get to, you know, we don't try it out, right? And uh, you know how it is when you do something for the first time, you had to get your driver's license, get in the car with somebody. There's a, there's a sense of fear. That's not all I'm talking about. I'm talking about fears as dread, like, oh my gosh, I, I just dread dying. I just dread, the, I don't know what's going to happen after I die. And so this is where the word of God comes in. Like God gives us so much truth narrative about what happens after death. That brings us great comfort and assurance when we're in need of it. And so here's what he says. He says, we have peace with God, and then we have the privilege of access. And we'll just kind of through this briefly. He says in verse 2, he goes on to say, uh, we, we, we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, that word where it says that we now have we now have gained access. In the Greek, it was literally would say have had. I know that's poor English. But what it's saying is that this has already happened. Like you have had, you've already had this, this access. So what's the difference? It means that you've been introduced. It's already happened. We have immediate, listen, we have immediate access into God's presence through Jesus Christ. Like, you didn't have to go through a class first. Uh, you didn't have to, like, you know, pass a written test. No, you have had, you have already, Jesus has already, in the heavenlies, he, as far as God's concerned, Jesus has already taken you by the hand and marched you into the presence of his heavenly Father and has introduced you to him. 
right? And so it's not like, oh, oh, I got to wait for it, I get to heaven for that to happen. No, in, in God's mind, this has already happened. We are at peace. We are his children. We are, we are citizens. It's not something we're waiting for after death, but it is in the here and now. And this access, he says, comes by faith, again, in Christ that leads us into what? Into God's grace. And so I, 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 I think about this like, Okay, he's forgiven us through his shed blood. He's clothed us in his righteousness. He takes us by the hand. Our high priest, our mediator between you know, God and us, our advocate who advocates for us, he is the one who has brought us into now the presence of God. He has opened the doorway. He rent the veil that separated the holiness of God from humanity, and he has ushered us into the very presence of God himself. So at the moment of salvation, God's Holy Spirit now invades your spirit, and he takes up residence, and the very presence of God is dwelling inside of you. You have access. Listen, your father loves you. He's smiling at you. He delights in you. He wants to shower you with his blessings. These, there are a significant number of people who do not approach God this way. And, and it just I think it breaks God's heart. So many times we, we spend all of our time just, you know, um, man, I just don't feel good enough. And you rehearse all of your failings and your faults and your flaws. And this is not, I mean, this is not where God wants us to dwell. We have access into his grace. His grace is his undeserved favor. It is acceptance of kindness, not because we deserve it, but because he's provided it for us. And he says, we stand in this. And so here's what Paul said, in, if he wrote Hebrews 4.16, that's a debate for another day. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. With what? Confidence. Not, oh God, it's me again. Oh God, I know you don't... I, no, confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. How many times throughout the course of your life do you have a need? <laughs> All the time. So think about this. This access that we have into the very throne room, the very presence of God, is something that those in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant never got to experience. And so sometimes we take grace for granted in that, you know, back in the Old Testament, when you sinned, man, when it came time for Day of Atonement, man, you're bringing your lamb. You're watching physically that lamb getting its throat slit and its life coming out of the body and getting hacked up and put on the altar of sacrifice and spelling the stench of all of those lambs, thousands in a day being sacrificed because of humanity's sin. And so there's the stench in your nostrils and it's a reminder that sin is a stench in the nostrils of God and it requires a substitute, a sacrifice, an unblemished lamb in order for God to provide forgiveness to remove his, his uh, wrath to justify, to clothe, and to forgive past, present, and future. And so now we have access to God because Jesus became our sacrifice. And so at the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles. You could only, that's us, you could only go so far. And then there's a wall, and then there's the court of women, and then there's the court of the Jewish men, and then there's the inner court where the priests did their priestly duties. And then there was the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt, where only one day a year, the day of 
atonement, Yom Kippur, that the high priest could enter into the presence of God and sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of the sacrificed lamb. And so when Jesus died on the cross and that veil was rent from top to bottom, says that now we have this glorious access to God 24-7. You don't think God loves you? You don't think God's concerned about you? That he wants to be involved in the details of your life? He opened up access to himself 24-7. And the beauty of it is you never get a busy signal. Here's the last in the preview of the future. He says in verse 2, the latter part of that, he says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice means to boast, to exalt, to celebrate. I mean, when we come into worship, should we not be exalting, celebrating in an exuberant way all that God has done? He has justified us. He has given us access into his presence. He has indwelt us in his spirit. Shouldn't we be a little enthusiastic about that on a given Sunday? I mean, if your friend's trying to sell you something that they just learned was the newest and greatest thing ever, and they don't come to you and go, well, try this, and I'm sure it'll change your heart like it did mine. That's probably not how they're going to, that's probably not their sales pitch, right? And we come up and people say, well, you know, you just need to try Jesus because I just, I know he can change your heart like he did mine. Although it's not done much for me, but it's okay. Paul says, man, I'm so flat out excited about what God has done. I can't wait to unpack all of this for you because he says it is going to radically change your life. He says we rejoice in the anticipation of the glory of God. God's glory is God being fully displayed, that God would reveal his glory to us. Listen, when a person comes to know Christ and you are redeemed and you begin to understand all that has transpired, it cannot help you help but say, you know what? I have tasted of the glory of God and I want to taste more of it. Think about Moses. Moses, who had all kinds of experiences with God, burning bush experience, you know, slaves being set free, Red Sea being parted, going up on a mountain, getting the law of God, mountains are shaking, and God's talking to him as he would talk to a friend. He has all of these experiences, and in Exodus 33, 18, Moses says, God, can, can you show me your more of your glory? Can you just show me more of your glory? And God says, well, uh, you can't handle it, but I'm going, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going, to have, I'm, the, I'm going to come across that with the backside of me, and I'm going to show you some of my glory. You can't handle all of my glory, but I'll show you some of your glory because here's the, prob- the principle is that once you've tasted of God's glory, you just want more. And if you look in the book of Acts in chapter 7, Stephen, that deacon who's preaching, they don't like what he's saying, so they're stoning him to death. And while they're stoning him to death, here's what it says. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. How incredible must the glory of God be if Stephen was more conscious of that than the stones that were beating his head to death? Peter experienced the transfiguration with Jesus, where as he exposed some of his glory, it so profoundly impacted him, he had to write about it. 
And so that God would have glory, that we would see his glory, we experience his glory as we grow and as he's he's forming us into the image of Jesus. And then that we would reveal his glory in us, right? So salvation is complete now. Salvation is about the past, justification. God has justified you just as if you have never sinned. He's forgiven you. He's clothed you in the righteousness of Christ. It is about sanctification, God working in your life, formulating your life into the image of his son. It's about glorification, the future where we are transformed and every vestige of sin is removed from us and that we even when this body that is susceptible to disease and death and colds and COVID and all that stuff when they cease to exist God will resurrect these bodies make them brand new and so here we are in the presence of God the glory of God in our glorified bodies with our souls and our spirits that are in perfected state of being reunited with our body and there God has completely Completed the entire process that he began the day you gave your life to Jesus. How amazing. And so 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we with who have unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I ask you, what do you rejoice over? Paul says we ought to rejoice over this stuff. 1 John 3.3 says those who, who have their hope in Christ, they will purify themselves just as he is, is pure. And here's how this transforms your thinking over time in closing. Instead of using God and loving things, the gospel will call you and empower you to love God and use things his glory. That's a huge transformation. That's our not, it's not our natural bent. Our natural bent is to use God and love things. God wants to reverse that. And Paul says, these are three benefits of believing. Now, the next one we're going to tackle is probably the most difficult. And it has to do with suffering and tribulations sickness, death, and there's one concrete reason why more people deconstruct their faith with God over this one issue than anything else. So I I close in sharing this with you. 